I just sound terrible. And um, so I'll, I'll try to uh, make it through tonight without irritating you too much, I hope. But we're glad to have you. We're continuing in our survey of church history and Christian denominations. And uh, so we're working our way toward the last few lessons of this part before we turn our attention strictly to Baptist history. And tonight we're going to take care of an interesting group, the Holiness, Pentecostals, and Charismatics. And that's a lot to cover in one session for sure, but we'll try to, try to make the connection between the three and try to distinguish a little better uh, the three groups and kind of the three belief systems and uh, point out some of the things that might particularly be different uh, that we as Baptists would hold to regarding some of their things. So uh, let's pray this evening. And uh, we'll take a look at, uh, we'll take a look as we start with the holiness group first. Father, thank you for our time, and I pray that you'll bless our evening as we continue in this particular study. I pray that you'll bless all the groups that are meeting tonight, and uh, that your word will be honored and taught well. And I pray that you'll bless the young people as they're enjoying uh, a Valentine's party, and the celebration, and enjoyment of that. And I pray that you'll just give us a good evening. Thank you for a great service this morning and for the opportunity to see your hand at work and continue to bless our church and our ministry here and our families. And may we do so for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> any, uh, I've, I've asked you all this a lot, any holiness, Pentecostal, or charismatic background here in families? Maybe not you individually. Not, not really? Well, okay, I, I, don't, I won't insult anybody then by what we'll say tonight, right? Let's talk first about the holiness. This is really where, this is really where this group starts, and uh, this discussion starts with the holiness doctrine. Now, I will submit to you, we as Baptists, uh, I believe, should have a concept of a holiness doctrine, that we strive to be holy. Be ye holy as I am holy, the Scripture says. I think it's a doctrine well un to be well understood and well appropriated. This doctrine, really, when you look at the churches, the variety of denominations, when you look at the general place and point where it really became sort of an issue, we'd look at Matthew 5 as a reference point that, that many holiness would, would refer to. And even others, be ye perfect, be ye therefore perfect, as the King James says it, even as your Father in heaven, which is perfect. That concept of perfection was first taught and uh, elevated by John Wesley. And we mentioned some of that as part of the, this is a part of the history of the Methodist movement out of the uh, Church of England. Remember, Methodism in its origin was not a unique denomination. They were a part of the Church of England movement. John Wesley was a priest, was ordained as was his brother Charles. The Wesleys were ordained in the Church of England, and they had no intent of separating from the Church of England. Their intent was to make a more purified, a more um, unique perspective of the faith. And I admire them greatly for their intent because they had quite a, quite a challenge. Because what they were a product of in their generation, even as younger men in college, they were part of a, of a movement known as the Pietist movement. 
built upon the word piety, it simply meant personal holiness, personal application of your faith. They lived in a time, and, and it's, it's probably just as true today in many circles of Christianity, where the main concern of many people was the structure of the church, the doctrines of the church, the functions of the church, what was all about the church doing. But there wasn't a whole lot of personal application. What does it mean to live as a Christian? What does it mean to personalize the faith? Now, we as Baptists are very comfortable with those terminologies. We, we almost expect to come into a service, come to a Bible study, and find a personal application. Here's how we should live. And to the credit of John Wesley, his brother Charles, another guy named George Whitfield, and some others who gathered with them there at Oxford University, they started this movement of a bunch of college students to be personally committed to their own Christian faith. We're going to live it out. They started doing things. They met weekly for Bible, uh, Bible study, prayer time. They fasted. They took their ministry out into the streets and ministered to the poor, to those who were imprisoned. You know what they were doing? They were living out their faith. This movement of pietism, as it will be called, or again, built off the word piety or personal holiness, became an integral part of John Wesley's doctrinal teachings. And again, Wesley's intent was to make Christianity a systematic process, which is where it originates the word Methodist from. They had a method to their Christianity. What does it mean for you to live as a Christian? John Wesley said, here's my method. And they became known as a Methodist. Brother Ray, agree with that so far? Right. And that's, a, and that's a great point. Because Wesley saw something in this as it was a striving. It was a process. It was a growth. It was a, an event that you work toward on a daily basis. Again, none of that concept today in 21st century Christianity should be unusual to us. So what happened was this concept of personal piety grabbed hold, of course, in England. And then as more Christians from England came to America, especially more Methodist of the Church of England persuasion, came to America, it almost, it's almost like when, you look at it, when, you look, when we look back down the pages of history, it's almost like once Methodism got here, it, it found root in a whole new earth. And it sprang up with great veracity. And the work of preaching the gospel found its way across the American colonial time and would spread west with great fervor. The two churches in America that would be called or referenced often as institutional churches would be the Congregationalists, which we looked at last week, the Pilgrims, basically, who also came out of the Church of England. They were in the north. 
Remember, the, it's the pilgrims who landed in Massachusetts, and they established their communities there with a congregational church. In the south, well, mid-Atlantic to the south, it was primarily the Church of England, the Anglican Church. Those were the two institutional churches that America inherited from England, if you will. But as following particularly the War of Independence and the turn of the 1800s and the institution of something called the Northwest Ordinance in 1787, America all of a sudden had a wide open western frontier. And America was moving west. And with that movement, community sprang up fast. And the institutional churches of the Congregationalists in the North and the Church of England, primarily in the South, could not keep up with it. Communities were moving faster than they could build churches or establish any kind of structure over those communities. And what happened? Christians began to assemble themselves into independent congregations. Wouldn't you? I would. If we all uproot and go somewhere else, you know, before long, once I've got a house built, maybe the crop's planted, my question is, okay, where's church? And so Christians began to assemble themselves into independent congregations. The beauty of what the new denominations brought to America, and those two denominations would be Methodist and Baptist primarily, was that they, they were able to get to those communities. And they got to those independent communities in the frontier. At that time, the frontier was places like Ohio and Indiana, right? They got to those communities, and they would help establish a church and set it up. And then they'd ride to the next community and set up a church there. Some very interesting stories of, of that time period in America, for sure. But the Baptists and the Methodists found great reception in those situations. For several decades following America's War for Independence, those two denominations primarily dominated the scene of the western frontier at the time as the faith moved west. Of course, we all know that the early 1800s was a time often called the Second Great Revival or Second Great Awakening in America. The early 1800s, indeed, there was quite a growth of, of, of biblical preaching. And there was, was quite a move of God across this new land. There was a big interruption to that called the Civil War. Obviously, that, that turned people's attention in a whole different direction in many ways. With the Civil War passed, it would be now time for sort of a new renewal of that concept of trying to continue a religious spirit in, in the American heartland. And what they, what they will point back to from the 1800s was a revival that actually happened before the Civil War, an outgrowth, no doubt, of the Second Great Awakening. But it was a revival that was, that was felt across America and Canada, starting in 1857 to 58. And this revival sprung up in many places. There, it's not like it started here and, and spread out. If you go back and read the history, there's a revival happening in Canada because they had started a prayer meeting. A group of ladies had started a prayer meeting every Tuesday. And that prayer meeting went for years. 
other places had prayer meetings. It was like, it's like God had just scattered the seed of revival across Canada, eastern Canada and the United States, the eastern United States. And this revival would be quite phenomenal. Ministers of the time would look back at this and say that was the most amazing thing they'd ever seen from a spiritual perspective in, among the people. It happened in, across denominations. It brought together denominations often into communities. It would be the Methodists who started a concept, a term that I, I'm sure you're probably somewhat familiar with. The concept of a camp meeting was started um, through, the, uh, through the outreach that was happening. And a camp meeting literally was. You piled up the family in the wagon, and we go off for a week, and there's going to be preaching through the day and in the evening and singing and just a, you know, a time of really getting into God's Word, almost like a revival meeting we, would, we might attribute it to now. The, um, it was really a unique time. But again, the Civil War will, will douse much of this movement and this energy until it's settled and until there is some sense of normality. And what happened was the Wesleyan move of perfectionism, our entire sanctification, our holiness, became a doctrine unto itself. See, where I think, I think Wesley got it, what I think Wesley did right was he kept, he kept this in perspective to all the other doctrines. It was, a, it was a second event in the life of a Christian. The first event being you, you, you come to Christ, and you accept Christ as Lord and Savior. The gospel is preached, and you respond. The second event would be the moment of entire sanctification where you get to that place of perfectionism which removes original sin from you. But where Wesley's teaching of that was within a structure and a somewhat confined, as you move through the 18th century, you see some people hang on to that as their primary doctrine, the move toward holiness. And as a result, there was a breakaway from the Methodist model and there was a development of, a, of an entire movement based upon this idea of holiness. And ultimately moving toward a doctrine of sinlessness. And there's still some, there's certainly doctrines today, there are certainly denominations today that teach that doctrine. You can reach, as a Christian, a place of sinlessness. Right? I hope that makes you stop for a moment and scratch your head about moving to a place of sinlessness. But that's what they will teach. And again, our, our time won't let us go down the, the real trail of this. Maybe at a later time we'll find some reason to do this, I'm sure. And that is to talk about the concept of holiness. Here in our church, and, and I'm sure in many evangelical churches, we hear the term sanctification. It's a term that Wesley would have used. And what does that mean? This is where the Christians of the 1800s struggled. Some of them latched on this concept of, wow, I can be sinless? Sign me up. And they, they rode that as their primary doctrine. And so what happened was a movement of holiness happened in the 1800s. This lady here is Phoebe Palmer. 
And uh, probably a name not many would recognize. Brother Ray makes an indication that he probably knows, has heard the name. Phoebe Palmer was uh, Canadian. And through her experience as a Methodist, in her testimony, we'll say she experienced this entire sanctification at a point in her life. She would become quite a voice herself, preaching and teaching, being kind of a, a writer. She wrote a lot. And um, she became an evangelist as a part of this camp meeting movement that was happening through the northern states particularly. And as this doctrine of holiness sort of became the driving point for so many Christians, there was really out of that developed what became a holiness movement that became a holiness denomination. And there were some other voices, but she's always one you hear typically pointed to as being one of the driving forces in that. So the holiness distinctive grew into a doctrine built around some of these concepts. Perfectionism, right? They took Wesley's idea and really put it on overload and made it the driving point of your faith. Your faith is to become perfect in this life. Now, that sounds odd to our ears, and rightfully I believe it should. Holiness would also talk about this as a second work of grace. The first work of grace, obviously, was your salvation. But that by what God was doing in your life, you can reach this state of perfection, sinless perfection, was a second work of, work of grace. And as a part of that, it removed the original sin in your life. And an evidence of that, or a definition of that, would be the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because God in me, through the Holy Spirit, allows me to live a sinless life. You've, there's a lot of questions you have to answer, and these are the attempts to answer those questions. And with the Holy Spirit in your life, the holiness movement attached on the idea of the gifts. All the gifts of the Holy Spirit are therefore active um, that are given to us in Scripture. Again, there's many gifts that you can talk about. And so this, this doctrine of holiness just took with it a whole string of other things along with it. And in order to demonstrate your sinlessness, your holiness, it would mean that you would pro, be very much prohibited from a lot of worldly activities and styles. Now, if you've had much exposure to the holiness denomination, you know that they really strive to demonstrate their personal holiness by the things they do and don't do. It becomes very much a list of here's what you're expected to do if you're in this state of perfection. So here's some of the distinctions. Because, as they would say, we are the partakers of God's holiness, and therefore we show ourselves holiness. We show our holiness by doing these things. All right, oops, jumped one head too far. Personal expressions of holiness. Take a moment and look at the picture when you get, when you get there. Rejection of theaters and plays, dances, mixed swimming. This is in the 1800s. Obviously, it will develop as it goes in the 1900s. Women cutting their hair was prohibited. Right? Do you, you, you get that picture? By the way, how's that look up there? It looks okay. It's, we we got to do a little adjusting on mine. It looks a little different. Um, she looks like she's um, a lot shorter than she really is. 
uh, women cutting their hair, no makeup, no immodest apparel, no ornamental jewelry, no showy wardrobe, clothing had to be very plain, no unwholesome music, and as it would develop as a technology, no TV at all. Um, I might agree with the no TV at all in today's world, but that's kind of where they were. Their, express, their expressions of personal faith was done in these tires, done in these types of mindsets. This is how you exhibit personal holiness. So the holiness movement really just sort of developed on its own. Somebody, you know, this doctrine framed within the concept of, of Methodism just was grabbed onto and just ran like wildfire in America. And it became a whole new movement unto itself that had not been seen, and certainly in the Church of England or in the Methodist or Wesleyan movements. It just got a whole new life unto itself. And so to understand the trail of how we're getting to all this, we start with the holiness movement that is uniquely American. It's spread er elsewhere, but it's uniquely American in its origin. And it, and it came about during a time when there was much. In the 1800s, and we'll spend some other time talking about this time period also, but the 1800s in America, especially pre-Civil War, was a time of a lot of religious fervor and activity and events, the Great Awakening being part of that. But there's other elements of it also. Some good and some not so good. Now today, the holiness group, of course, has developed into not just a, a doctrine, but a denomination. Um, so you'll find churches often with the name holiness in them, such as the Church of Christ Holiness or the Church of God Holiness. Church of the Nazarene, you don't see too many of those around here, but, but they, they, they come out of this group also. Church of Christ and Christian Union. Again, you know, not a, not a major um, group in our community, but there are some holiness churches here in the way it works. So with holiness moving in that direction, pretty soon a, a new direction springs off of this. Oh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. If we're going to have the gifts of the Holy Spirit, somebody grabbed that idea and made that the driving force of your doctrine. And that's where you get the Pentecostals. So we understand, so we understand the term, Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 is the reference point always. Pentecost is a name that gets, comes into English from Greek, and it means 50 days. It's, an, it's, a, it's a term that really is existent in the Old Testament. You just don't see the word Pentecost. And it was on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came to the disciples, the 120 disciples in the upper room meeting, right? We know, the, we know enough of the story. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends and they saw a flame of, a tongue of fire set on their heads. Some spoken tongues is a term that's going to be used in that description. And then you have all the things the church does. Well, once the discussion of the holiness doctrine and the gifts of the Spirit now that grows into its own movement, the gifts of the Spirit. We want our church, we want our denomination, we want our beliefs to be just like those in the Bible. Now, I will submit to you today, that's a driving force in this church. We will say, is it in the Bible or is it not? It's going to be Bible-based in our decisions about what our church operates as. And it's doctrine 
and in its ministry. And you will see that idea run through many denominations. I think their intent was good. What does the Bible say? We want to be like the original church. Remember I told you a few weeks ago, one of the terms will run across, not here, but we'll see it ultimately, is a term primitive. What was the primitive church like? That was their term to refer to the first Christian church in Acts chapter 2 and the church of the New Testament through the apostles period. What was that church like? That's how we want our church to be today. We want to get rid of all this clutter that the church has accumulated over hundreds and hundreds of years, and we want to go back to being simple Christians. So the word primitive comes into conversation. So they were all had this mindset. The Pentecostal movement started with the idea of, well, the church had the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. The church has this power. The church has this ability. There were signs and wonders and miracles and healings and speaking in tongues. And, and hey, that's, we want to do that. So the, once the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit comes into the discussion, now you've got a whole new doctrine that's taking off and flying on its own. So here's kind of the path of how the Pentecostal mindset would develop. You come to faith in Christ, salvation. You have growth toward holiness. There's that concept again. You grow toward holiness. Then there's this great second work of grace in your life that takes you to this place of sinless perfection or, or purely sanctified life, which removes your original sin. And then there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. The imparting of the Holy Spirit is a baptism. Again, that's not a, that's not a, that's a, that's a biblical term. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, to the Pentecostal doctrine as it developed, it meant, well, you're able to do what they did in Acts chapter 2. You can speak in tongues. And you can live this attained life of perfection. And you might even be slain in the Spirit. You might even have the gifts of the Holy Spirit that allow you to prophesy or to heal. You see what I'm saying? Or do other things that are part of that. So again, this kind of grew into this whole movement that collected ideas of what does it mean to be a Pentecostal Christian. Now the name that's pointed to here is this man, Charles Fox Parham. And you can see his dates there, late 1800s. He certainly is a growing up in this time in the late 1800s where there's a lot of this discussion about the holiness movement and this concept. He, he is considered a pioneer of Pentecostalism. Um, but remember, there's no such thing as a Pentecostal denomination at his time. He worked as an evangelist, revivalist, um, grew, a, grew a bit of certainly a following and some fame in that position. And he he was very expressive about this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He had started a school in Topeka, Kansas, a college intending to train people for the ministry. It only lasted a year um, before he moved it. But while he was away, he had been teaching his students about the Holy Spirit. And while he was away, his students decided to have a, a prayer vigil one night. And according to the story, during that prayer vigil, one of the students, a, a female, began to speak in tongues. 
And she would later say this was, she was speaking in the tongue of Chinese, a tongue being a language, a foreign language. Although no one there knew Chinese or knew if it was Chinese or wasn't Chinese. This is Topeka, Kansas, in the, right? So that was the experience. He comes back after a weekend or a week away or something, comes back and hears of this experience and thought, okay, well, let's see what God will do with this. And encourage the students to pray more and ask for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let's see what develops out of that. Again, he would, he would come to emphasize that experience of speaking in tongues as being the evidence that God is really blessing your life and God is on you. He would later, I mentioned the school only being open a year, he would move his school or he would relocate himself down to Houston, Texas. And there again would, would start up a, a school, a Bible school or ministry school. And it would be there that he would have his first student who was African-American, William Seymour. And William Seymour heard this teaching about the Holy Spirit as Parham began to expound on it and continue to, again, give it some, some life and some, some energy. And William Parham, I'm sorry, uh, William Seymour, decided that, that he would go preach. People need to hear this. He was invited by someone who had heard him preach in the Houston area from Los Angeles. So the guest from Los Angeles goes back to her church and says, oh, I heard this preacher in Texas. You need to get him here. We've got to hear this message. And so William Seymour accepts an offer to come to Los Angeles and preach there. And what, what happened was he started to preach the gifts of tongues. The church that had invited him kindly asked him to leave and that they did not want to hear such. Some of the people in the congregation, though, were enthralled by this idea. So one of them said, let's meet at my house. The word began to spread of this African-American preacher who had all these ideas about God and the, the tongues and everything. It was such a new concept. They outgrew the house. And so they went, to, uh, they went to another facility. This was in 1906. Went to another facility where they began to have him preach regularly. And sure enough, the gifts of the Holy Spirit through tongues was, was becoming evident to those people in the congregation. The movement that would become this would be the Pentecostal church. So when we look at the modern Pentecostal movement as it is, we talk about the beginnings with Parham in Topeka, Kansas, and the exposure to tongues that became a part of his teaching through that. Him moving to Houston, Texas, continuing the preaching there. William Seymour being the man who would go to Los Angeles and be the, the primary voice for something that became known as the Azusa Street Revival in 1906 through 1909. 
the Azusa Street Revival is pretty much the event that brought about modern Pentecostalism in America, for sure. This is William Seymour in the top left there. The building there where it has apostolic faith on the side is the building where this was happening. And the apostolic faith there is the newspaper that was published as a result of this ministry. Pentecost has come, it says. Again, they're looking back at what happened in Acts 2 saying, we, we want to be like that. That's the church we need to be like. It's 1906, and what would be an interesting turn of events for sure was that here's, here's uh, Seymour in Los Angeles preaching, uh, preaching the Pentecostal message and the coming judgment of God, and it would be shortly after that that the San Francisco earthquake would happen, one of the most devastating quakes in American history. That really got a lot of people's attention, that maybe this guy's onto something after all. And maybe his preaching really has some power to it and some divine prophecy to it that we need to pay attention to. So it just added fuel to this whole concept of building on this man's preaching. By the way, Parham in Texas was hearing of everything happening in Los Angeles. He went and tried to join in with it. Became a little bit of a power struggle, though. Who's going to really lead this movement? Who's going to be the face and the voice of it? Uh, eventually, Parham will leave, and Seymour remains the voice and the face of the Pentecostal movement uh, event of, that, of the uh, Azusa Street revivals. And again, time prohibits me from going into a lot of detail, but go online and look up the Azusa Street revivals or look up a, a YouTube channel. There's plenty of descriptions of what was happening and how things were advancing. But again, Pentecostalism will have its doctrinal distinctives that make them unique. So here's a few. Some of the leaders are viewed as anointed prophets. I mean, how can you say a man who does these things is not anointed even to the office of a prophet like Seymour? Again, a great emphasis upon the baptism of the Holy Spirit as that second work of grace. And what really becomes a cornerstone for the Pentecostal movement is this, this concept of experience. So let's, let's park here for just a minute. If I were to ask you, in the presence of our worship service this morning, how was God's presence evident? Where was it evident? Interesting question, isn't it? After all, we come to worship God. Where is God's presence evident? I will submit to you it's evident through his word. That's why it's the preaching of the word. I will submit to you the Holy Spirit in each one of us will affirm the truth of God's word to us as born-again ones in Christ. So we have a a recognition of God's presence through his word and through the work of the Spirit in us as individuals. If you were to ask that question, say, of a Roman Catholic, where's the evidence of God's presence? They would probably look at the altar and say, it's in the sacrament. The priest pronounces 
the blessing on the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And there's the body and blood of Christ. We would say God's presence is evident in the sacrament of the communion. If you were to ask that question of a Pentecostal, their answer would most likely be, in the experience I had today. The experience of what I felt and maybe what I spoke speaking in tongues. It's all about the experience. And, all they, and, and, and their focus becomes the experience. Wasn't church great today? If I were to ask you that question without asking you that answer out loud, was church great today? Anytime you walk out and say, church was great today, what is your reason for that? Why was church great? I suspect that somewhere in that discussion, we might have to encounter the word experience. But I submit to you, church can be great without us having a great experience. Why? Because God's truth has been proclaimed. The gospel has been presented. We have been drawn into the presence of God through his word, and we allow that word to penetrate our heart. God's people can gather and have a great service without me having a great experience. So you see a very sharp contrast there. The Pentecostal movement has lived almost from day one under this concept. It's about the experience. I experienced God today has become a very common mantra for, for many. I experienced God today. And they're looking for that experience. They're looking for that emotion. They're looking for that expression. So that's certainly a very distinct and unique way to think about church that what I, th I submit to you would be very different than what we would and have experienced in our Christian faith here at this church in the worship services that we have or in the times we gather for prayer. Experience, if on the list, is going to be way down the list because we should be focused on God's word. What was that truth today? Thy word is truth, Jesus said. Sanctify them by thy word. It's, it's all about the word. It does the sanctifying work through the Holy Spirit in us. Now, again, the, the Pentecostal movement hung a lot of hats on the idea of the gifts, particularly tongues, as an evidence. Are you truly saved? There are some Pentecostals who will say, the only way you'll know if you're truly saved or not is if you speak in tongues. That's kind of the extreme part of the movement, but it's certainly there. So there's a great emphasis upon that, upon that revelation of tongues. And again, they will use terms and phrases, words, uh, as works of grace related to salvation, sanctification, and empowerment. God has saved you. That's the first work of grace. God has sanctified you. The second word of grace, work of grace. The third work of grace will be God has now empowered you so that you can speak in tongues. You can interpret tongues. Something about the tongues that just really is the idea of, uh, of an evidence of your faith. Now, let's talk about a couple things here. One is the idea of the tongues. Now, the word that's translated in the King James of tongues is often in newer translations 
translated languages. And that's a good translation. And in the King James, English, tongues was a good translation. It's just that the language has changed enough over time that we hear tongues. We're not really sure what that fuzzy definition is. But the actual account records best when it says they spoke in other languages. What languages? Other known languages. The technical term for that is called glossolalia. It comes from the Greek word gloss that has the idea of a language. Y'all remember being in school and you had something in the back of the books called the glossary? That's where that word comes from in English. Words of the language is a glossary. Words as it's currently used in the language is a glossary. It's different from a dictionary, but that's where the word comes from. So when you get into the technical side of the discussions regarding Pentecostal doctrine, you're going to hear that discussion about glossolalia sometimes used. It simply means the study of the languages of tongues. And one of the big debates there is, is it the tongues of men, which would be foreign languages, and again, if you read the, as you read the account of chapter 2 in Acts, you'll see the account said, each man heard in their own language, in their own tongue, they heard the gospel proclaimed. That was a miracle God had done of language. Second part of that debate about gloss, uh, about gloss and, and the idea of glossolalia is, is it a language of man or is it a language of angels? an unknown human language. And you will hear some Pentecostals talk about expressing themselves in an angelic language, a language they don't know, a language no one can interpret. It's just words that come out of their mouth. And they would express, I spoke in tongues today, of which no one was able to interpret, so it must have been an angelic or a heavenly language. So there's a, there's a debate there for sure. And I'm not going to chase down the debate about tongues in general. Our time just will not allow us. I'll give you a good reference in a moment to, to chase that, that idea down if you want to. The second issue that must come to our attention related to Acts chapter 2 is this concept. And this is really, really where I think they missed the mark entirely. Is Acts chapter 2 a model for every church after Acts chapter 2? right? So if the gospel was preached, people were saved, and tongues were spoken, is that the way the church should always act? Well, it's not a hard question to answer as you read through the rest of the New Testament. Because really, apart from Paul writing to a church in Corinth, which was the weakest of all the churches in the New Testament writings, the issue isn't addressed. The gifts of the Holy Spirit is addressed only once or twice. It's only in Romans and, and first in, in the writings of Corinthians. But when you read through the rest, of the rest of the story, you don't see tongues brought up. Paul isn't recommended to the church of Galatia. Now, you know, y'all are a good church, and you're facing this opposition of doctrine. Make sure you speak in tongues more. He never says to the Ephesians, your culture is corrupt, it's falling apart, you'll be much stronger if you'll speak in tongues. He never mentions it to the other churches. Go read the accounts of Revelation chapter 2 and 3 where seven churches are addressed. Five of those churches have good reports. 
All seven of them have something that the Lord needs to address with them. He never says to any of those seven churches anything about tongues. You really have to blow this issue way out of proportion to make it even a discussion point because the scripture just does not have it. And again, this is where the, where the holiness group grabbed that one doctrine of holiness and ran with it to the nth degree. The Pentecostals grabbed the gifts of the Holy Spirit, particularly tongues. Remember, there's many gifts of the Holy Spirit. But they grabbed that one and ran it to the nth degree. Even to the point of saying, you, you're not saved if you can't speak in tongues. And I don't see that in the scripture. So is what's in Acts chapter 2, here's the, here's the second big issue. Is what in, what's in Acts chapter 2 descriptive or prescriptive? We would say, I would say, it is descriptive. It describes what God did at a certain place, at a certain time, through a unique setting of the preaching of, the, of Peter to the Jews in Jerusalem. It describes it. What it is not is not prescriptive. It's not a model for which the rest of the gospel should always express as it moves forward into churches across the globe. It's not prescriptive. The Pentecostals will, will take the position it's prescriptive. Well, they did it. We want to do it too. So there's a, you know, it's, to me it's a, it's a textual debate and it's a logical debate that I don't, I don't think the Scripture holds much evidence for the necessity of tongues the way it is prescribed by the Pentecostal movement. Now, the Pentecostal movement grew into its own denomination. The holiness group grew into a denomination. The Pentecostals moved into their own denomination, so they've got their groups too. And I've got some, some dates up here with some of these when they started, and you see they're pretty much all early, early 1900s, again, building off the Azusa Street Revival of 1906 and 1909. And again, these are churches we would find in our community. There's, there's a good sampling of those churches um, all around here. Um, and one of the most influential of the bunch is probably the Foursquare Gospel Churches, historically influential, and the most recognizable name in that discussion is a woman named Amy Simple McPherson. Now, she is an interesting story for sure. You can see her dates, born in the late 1800s. She was raised uh, a Methodist in, a, in a, a, a devout Methodist family. She would later marry, uh, her first marriage was to a Pentecostal evangelist whom she met from Canada. They uh, married and went off to the mission field. They won't go to China. They went to China. Both of them would contract malaria. And the husband, along with that, uh, contracted dysentery. And uh, he died. Once they got back to the States, he died. Amy Simple, her married name, uh, found herself a single mom. She would give birth just a few months after her husband died. She would later marry a McPherson, and um, her work in ministry continued. But she always felt like she was called to be a preacher, an evangelist, not just someone to lead the 
a, a part of the church or, or to be involved in church. She saw herself as really being called to preach. And so she became a preacher as a woman in Los Angeles and became really the first mega church preacher in America. She used, this as a time of radio in the 20s and 30s. She used the media as no one had ever used it to preach. She's in Los Angeles during the time of the rise of the film industry. She became her own celebrity. Um, and she became quite a, a well-known commodity. She's got an interesting story, and I just don't have time to go in all of it. This is a picture from 1926 uh, that were put out through the L.A. Times. And she became quite a, a celebrity preacher, America's first celebrity preacher. Again, go look her up and go find a YouTube documentary about uh, Amy Simple McPherson. And uh, you will indeed find some unique, uh, unique stories about her. One of the most interesting ones was the idea that she disappeared. And there was a great fear that she had drowned there at the, at the beach one day. She turned up five weeks later. And there's been debate ever since. Was she, did she just run away from life for a few weeks? Was she kidnapped? That was her story. It's just an odd, you know, it's the kind of stuff you, you read about in National Enquirer stuff. A lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of uh, discussion about that whole situation. But she, she indeed made quite an impression upon a nation who was hearing their first radio broadcast of a preacher as a woman who was a Pentecostal mindset, especially on the West Coast. So the Pentecostals. Now the Pentecostals lead then to the Charismatics. So we sort, of, we sort of complete the trivecta with them. <clears throat> the charismatic movement is not a denomination. It, it's, it oversees other denominations, if you will, or it's infected other denominations, maybe a better way to say it. When you look at the history of the charismatic movement, it does not become a unique church. It becomes an event happening in lots of denominations, including some Baptists. And, of course, it's tied closely to Pentecostalism, but Pentecostalism is a denomination. The holiness group is a denomination. They would develop their associations and groups and denominational standards. The Pentecostals would do the same. But the charismatic movement really is a movement that transcends the denominations. The early waves, it's usually three stages that are here, the Pentecostals to the charismatics. The classic charismatics, again, coming out of that time period of, the, of uh, the Pentecostal movement, Acts 2 becomes the expectation. They did it there, or our church will do that too. So the great emphasis upon the gifts and the expressions of, of emotion and the uh, miracles of Acts chapter 2. And in some ways, some historians will call it an extension of the great awakenings of the 1800s. It was just people looking for. If you go back and read the history of many of those camp meetings in the 1800s, you will find people, you will find accounts of people there who were slain in the spirit, who, who spoke in tongues, to use the term that would later be developed, who just had all types of expressions of, of physical uncontrollability. They twist and turn and gyrate and fall to the ground and go in convulsions. 
A lot of that was happening through the 1800s in some of those camp meetings. And so some people see the charismatic movement as just an extension of that. Charismatics would take a different look in the 1950s and 60s. It became multiple, uh, applied to multiple denominations. And I'm using the term additive because the charismatics didn't ask you to quit your church or leave your church or quit being a Baptist or quit being a whatever. Just while you're doing that, add some charismatic to your equation of being a Christian. So it can stay in your church. That's fine. But, you're, but you, really want to, you really want to demonstrate your faith, your true faith in God and God's blessings on you, then you're going to show these gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, the word charismatic comes from the Greek word charis, which means grace. I saw Pastor Nick back there. His daughter is named charis, the Greek word for grace. So you connect that dot next time you'll know what, what, where that name come from. So the charismatic are the gifts of grace of the Holy Spirit. The 1950s and 60s, that's where charismatic movement got its hold, a lot of denominations. There are even Catholic charismatics. Sounds odd to us. A group in, at, at Notre Dame University, 1967, started the first Catholic Charismatic Association. So the Charismatics got a voice in the 50s and 60s. And many of those voices were found in media. So that by the time you get to the 1980s up till the day, you have a, a phase called the Neo-Charismatic or the New Charismatics of the late 1900s and early 2000s, where now they're, they're not just preaching tongues. That's still a part of what they do. But they added a whole bunch of other stuff to it. They added the prosperity gospel. They added signs and wonders, healings, miracles, word of prophecy. And in their idea, a word of prophecy, you know, these characters who say, God told me this morning. You know what they're doing? They're equating what they're saying with the word of God. And, and even elevating what they're saying above the word of God in some cases. That's word of prophecy. Sometimes called also word of faith. Televangelism, right? Starting in the early development of television in the 50s and 60s, the charismatics quickly found an audience on television that would follow them. And that idea has continued ever since. And there's not a person on that screen I'd recommend anybody buy their books, listen to their shows, or follow their teachings. Because they all have this ingrained, and that's, by the way, I wish that list was exhaustive. It's not. There's plenty of others out there who are doing the same thing. A whole new generation of charismatics are coming up to take their place. But what you find in them is this strand of Pentecostal charismatic that I think has twisted and perverted and turned the Scripture into something it was never intended to be. And they too have their multiple groups and associations, but it's only through the Pentecostals. Again, charismatic is not a denomination. It's an ideology. It's a doctrine. It's a teaching of, a, of an individual, but it's not going to be found except in the Pentecostal churches and maybe some of the holiness churches too. But you will find it across denominations. 
There are Baptists today who would express charismatic tendencies. You may have heard the term Bapticostal, which sort of tends to express or intends to express that idea. So the, the Pentecostal movement certainly, you know, can't be ignored. It's worldwide. Some estimates are now uh, roughly 500 million adherents to Pentecostalism worldwide. 500 million. That's basically one and a half times the population of the United States. There are Pentecostals around the world. It has found a stronghold in Africa and in some cases South America, uh, particularly and other, and other places too, obviously. One of the things I want to mention also is a, a great deviation from Pentecostalism. Pentecostals are typically put in the mainstream of Christianity. We would find a lot of similarities with some doctrines with them, but certainly not all. But in 1945, a merger occurred between these two groups that formed the United Pentecostal Church International. And what this group became is, is, is known as Oneness Pentecostal. Oneness Pentecostalism throws out the door the idea of the Trinity. So there, in Oneness Pentecostalism, there is no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is one God who on some days is the Father, and on some days is the Son, and on some days is the Spirit. Right? You see, that? You see, you see the heresy there? One God who is changing identities as needed. They will, they will proclaim and preach a Jesus Christ and a salvation only through Christ, but their concept of God is, is, off, is out of the Scriptures, is, not, is away from the Scriptures, is a better way to say it probably. So instead of God being a trinity, they would say that one God is evident one at a time in these three persons. Their baptism is only done in the name of Jesus Christ not in a Trinitarian formula. And they would proclaim the absolute deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, the oneness Pentecostals have a tendency to, to put in the name of their church and their associations the absolute deity of Christ or only following Jesus Christ, which just to read on a logo or a T-shirt might sound reasonable. But when you dig down one layer lower, you find out there really is no intent to have a trinity. They're only talking about one God. The absolute Biggest name in the one that's Pentecostal is T.D. Jakes, a, a, a person who does speak and have time on satellite Christian television, interesting enough, who has written many books. Um, but what can you say of the one that's Pentecostal as a group? It's all a heresy. It is the worst deformation of who God is. There is no Trinitarian mindset. So you sort of see how this thing grows tentacles. And what was a doctrine that certainly would be mainstream Christian in the Methodist movement morphed into holiness that got ran down the road. And then some people from that movement grabbed gifts of the Spirit and ran it down the road in tongues. And then the charismatic movement takes on a whole new life to oversee and overshadow other denominations in the 1900s particularly. And still around today, obviously. So there's a, uh, there's a lot to this group. The, the best resource, let me give you a good resource to read, I was going to put a picture up, but didn't, didn't have time to today, I'm sorry, is a book entitled Strange Fire, easy topic to remember, easy title, Strange Fire, and it, it does an absolute masterful job of detailing the history, but also detailing the doctrinal problems 
with the Pentecostal and Charismatic Movement, written by uh, John MacArthur, Strange Fire, and I'd highly recommend it to get a good in-depth look at this. Well, we're not done yet. We're going to take one more, at least one more week, and look at this group that we'll find much more identity with, um, and that is the Christian, Evangelical, and Fundamental Christians. You might think, well, some of those terms apply to me. Okay, well, that's fine too. We just need to learn the history of this as we set the stage, what I'm anticipating, maybe by the end of the month or certainly first of March, going into Baptist history and taking a, a few weeks and looking strictly at the Baptist history with some detail. So thank you for your patience tonight. I remind you, uh, we're supporting the Appel family, and I'm glad to do so. I'm glad they're Bible-based, and we can have great confidence in what they're teaching and preaching and uh, the ministry they're conducting there in uh, the South Pacific. So uh, that box is out there if you'd like to give to them. Uh, well, let's pray as we dismiss. We're right at time to go, and, and uh, we'll look forward to enjoying the evening. Father, thank you for our time uh, tonight to discuss uh, this movement of history that's impacting our world today. Help us to be well-grounded in the doctrines of truth of your Bible. Help us to understand the issues so that we will not be deceived and uh, we will not be detoured from serving you uh, through the, through the uh, uh, absolute truth of your word. And I pray that uh, we'll be well-grounded in, um, in those issues, that we may find our, our direction and guidance from you uh, to allow us to live our life in a way that honors the truth of your word and honors our Savior Christ. Bless our evening as we dismiss and our week ahead as we anticipate it. May it indeed be for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Lord bless everyone. Hope you have a great evening.